Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law in lovely Northfield, Illinois. And uh, we've got a great show for you today. This is a really great day to tune in. We're going to do a little Jerry Garcia music. Uh, We've got some uh, very, very large breaking stories in the uh, world of marijuana that we're going to get into. Dan will surprise us with some marijuana music again, which we will look forward to. Uh, But today we are focusing on the Jerry Garcia Band, November 15th, 1991, at Madison Square Garden. Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You is a song recorded by American soul singer Marvin Gaye from his fifth studio album of the same name in 1965. It was written in 1964 by the Motown songwriting team of Holland, Dozier, and Holland and produced by Brian Holland and Lamont Dozier. The song's title was inspired by one of the actor and comedian Jackie Gleason's signature phrases, How Sweet It Is, released on November 4th, 1964 with the song Forever, on the B-side. Now, more famously, James Taylor released his version of How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You as the lead single from his album Gorilla in 1975. Taylor's 1975 single has been the most successful remake of the song to date, hitting number one on the Easy Listening chart and number five on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart. Long a staple of Jerry Garcia Band set lists, it was first played on September 18, 1975 at Sophie's in Palo Alto, and it was last played on April 23rd, 1995 at the Warfield Theater in San Francisco. Played over 370 times, by far the Jerry Garcia Band's most played tune, uh, Midnight Moonlight coming in second, almost 30 behind, uh, at just about 340. The song was usually played as a show opener, and it was on this instance as well. What I like about this, and you're going to hear today, we wind up with a lot of covers almost uh, besides the point, because Jerry's taken a number of these tunes and worked them into his repertoire uh, where uh, the casual deadhead might be uh, mistaken for thinking that maybe they were actually uh, uh, Jerry's tunes. But what I really, really love about this tune is if you're walking into your first Jerry Garcia show ever, and this is what he opens with, you're going to know the song. Everybody's heard this song many, many times. 
What makes it so special here is the way that Jerry reinvents it. His his guitar playing, uh, the stretches he takes as he normally does, takes you know regular uh, traditional pop songs that run four to six minutes and then expands them out into eight, nine, ten minutes, sometimes more um, uh, experiences. And and with this song, uh, he just does such a wonderful, wonderful job uh, that even though I. I've heard it so many times when I saw the Garcia band. Uh, I love it. And I would gladly sit through it again and again and again uh, because he plays it with that energy and enthusiasm and uh, just a wonderful, wonderful tune and a great way uh, to open up a Jerry Garcia show. You heard this and you know you were in for a good night. You just kind of settle in and, and, and really enjoy it all. Now, uh, just to tell you how difficult this job can be sometimes, it turns out that on November 13th, there are three Grateful Dead shows and six Jerry Garcia band shows, obviously a day very much enjoyed uh, by Jerry. However, of those six, none of them were available on archive.org in their full format. Uh, so instead, I'm doing a, a Jerry Garcia band show two days later on November 15th, 1991 from Madison Square Garden. I may have said the 13th earlier, but I'm getting confused myself, but actually this is from November 15th, 1991 at Madison Square Garden. So 32 years and two days ago, uh, the standard Jerry Garcia band light up for that time played. We had Jerry, of course, on guitar and vocals, uh, his ever present bassist, John Kahn, Melvin Seals on keyboard. Uh, uh, just, just a wonderful, wonderful, uh, person who we've, we've never really given, um, uh, enough time and attention to, we focus on Merle Saunders a lot, and well, we should. Merle is amazing. Uh, but Melvin stepped in uh, somewhere along the way, late 70s, early 80s, and just became the man behind the keyboards for the Jerry Garcia Band. And in fact, Melvin Seals still tours as the Jerry Garcia Band, uh, doing a certain number of shows from time to time. Uh, he, he's a tremendous musician. If you ever have a chance to catch him, uh, you should make a point to do so. Dave Kemper was on drums, and then his uh, Jerry's a standard strong backing vocals of Jacqueline LeBranch and Gloria Jones, uh, who seemed like they'd been with the Jerry Garcia band forever. And with their uh, beautiful voices, um, sometimes harmonizing with Jerry, sometimes backing Jerry, sometimes leading the way, uh, they bring a whole nother element uh, to the Grateful Dead and uh, to Jerry Garcia band. I always like it uh, when we hear women sing uh, Grateful Dead tunes and you, and you get the, the female perspective of it. Um, you know, and it's, it's really amazing. Susan Tedeschi's Sugary is just one that, that jumps to mind. Um, but uh, when you hear Jacqueline and Gloria really going at it um, uh, on all of these songs, uh, you can tell that uh, the Jerry Garcia band just took a major step forward when they were added to the, uh, to the crew and they were part of the crew right up until the very end. So we have great musicians, great vocals, it's 1991. Jerry is rocking a fun night. Blues Traveler was the opening act on this night at Madison Square Garden. Um, and this show that we're uh, featuring today was previously released as Garcia Live Volume 16 uh, for those of you interested in going out and getting it that way. And then you can really sit and listen to it in the comfort of your own living room and uh, make David Lemieux and the Grateful Dead and Jerry Garcia and all those folks who put this stuff out very, very happy for uh, enjoying their stuff so much. A, a really fun show overall. And at a time in 1991, uh, when, you know, people were already just, you know, thinking about beginning to write off uh, the Grateful Dead, the Spring, spring 91 tour uh, is often referred to as the last great tour by the Grateful Dead. Um, and then people will give you all sorts of reasons. Jerry's voice wasn't good. He forgot words. They weren't playing as long. 
on and on and on. But it kind of seemed like when Jerry stepped on stage with the Jerry Garcia band, uh, he was revived in a way uh, that he didn't seem to be happening with the dead at that moment. And just the, the energy you're going to hear in the songs we feature today, both in terms of his uh, amazing guitar playing and his beautiful singing. And unfortunately, due to the size limits of the clips, uh, we don't. there's really no way to feature both in the song. So I try to give you a little of both. But this is definitely a show that I would I would really make a point to sit down and listen to because we just can't do it justice uh, in terms of, of what we try to uh, um, make available when we when we play it on our show here. Uh, but in that same mode, let's just dive right back into the very next song that we're going to feature today. Uh, a Bob Dylan cover surprise, surprise for Jerry Garcia. In 1975, Bob Dylan released the album Blood on the Tracks. We've talked about it on this show. Tangled Up in Blue comes off of that album. Uh, many, many others, but it included this song, Simple Twist of Fate. The song is a haunting ballad about a failed relationship, and many fans have speculated about who Dylan wrote it about. While Dylan has never confirmed the identity of the song's subject, many believe that he wrote it about his former girlfriend, Joan Baez. Dylan's message is one of hope and change. He speaks of a world that is better than the one we currently live in and urges people to work together to make it a reality. He also advocates for peace and love and has said that these are the only things that can truly change the world. And you got to love it when you're talking about a Bob Dylan song and you, you sound like you're writing an English paper when you talk about it because you're jumping into all of his themes and all of his ideas and all of his voices and not that Dylan needs uh, you know any more praise or you know somebody extolling his his uh, talents, but, you know, he really is just uh, uh, an amazing person, an amazing treasure to American music. And, you know, people will say, well, I go and hear him today and it sounds like nails on a chalkboard and it does. Um, But, you know, he had his time when his voice uh, was never great, but certainly suitable for what he was doing. And the fact that he's still out there, you know, pushing his music hard. And of course, as we've talked about covering some Grateful Dead tunes and other stuff is just fantastic. I have a book, uh, just the lyrics of Bob Dylan, and I don't even need the music. Just reading through all of his songs, the lyrics is really incredible. And you realize, you know, what an amazing talent and gifted songwriter and lyricist he is. Um, And, you know, like uh, Robert Hunter, I think, could have easily been an award-winning poet uh, had he chose to 
you know, gone that route instead of uh, taking his words and putting them to music. But thank God he didn't take that route because we'd be without some of the greatest songs um, in American music uh, that exist today. Now, as for the uh, dead and, and Garcia specifically, he was always a big fan of Dylan. He played this song 217 times. Uh, the first on July 4th, 1976 at the Great American Music Hall in San Francisco. And the last on April 23rd, 1995 at the Warfield Theater in San Francisco. Now, if you're wondering if it's a coincidence that uh, how sweet it is and now Simple Twist of Fate both were played for the last time by uh, the Garcia Band on April 23rd, 1995, that was the last Jerry Garcia Band show. And uh, a lot of these songs were in the rotation so firmly embedded that it was almost, uh, it, would, it would be odd if you didn't see some of these songs when you went to see Garcia. He rotated them around enough to keep things interesting and to keep people guessing. But uh, uh, certainly this was a song that um, was played very often. The Deadheads, the Garcia fans, everybody loved it. And, uh, you know, Jerry sings it with a, a certain type of emotion. And, you know, he interprets it in his own way as he plays it, not necessarily the same way Dylan does. And for many of us who uh, were big Garcia guys, um, or gals. Uh, we love Jerry's interpretation of just about anything, but specifically and especially his interpretations of Bob Dylan. And uh, we've talked about the number of Dylan tunes that the dead have covered. There's a whole album, uh, Postcards of a Hanging, that's nothing but the Grateful Dead covering Bob Dylan and still doesn't include all of the songs uh, that they covered. But Garcia loved him and, and, and played a lot of it. And uh, it was great to hear. And it was always a fun part of a show uh, when Jerry would venture off uh, into the world of Dylan. Now, uh, today, we're going to go just a little bit out of order here um, because there's just so much happening in the world of marijuana, uh, including one very, very large story that I want to get to. So I'm going to dive into the large story now. We'll circle back, catch a little more music, and then we'll finish up with what I would almost call uh, the more uh, standard, if you will, uh, basic marijuana stories. But this one's a biggie, so let's dive right into that, Dan. Ooh, and I suddenly see you. Ooh, did I tell you I need you every single day of my life? Got to get you into my life. Well, Dan is clever, folks. I got to give him credit. He has uh, uh, really stepped into this role of uh, finding good music to send us off into the world of marijuana news and taking it uh, to a new art. We all know what this song is, Gotta Get You Into My Life. Paul McCartney wrote it. It's on the Beatles album Revolver. And in 1997, in an interview, McCartney admitted that it was an homage to marijuana, saying it's actually an ode to pot like someone else might create an ode to chocolate or to good claret, uh, the English version of uh, like a red Cabernet. Um, but, uh, you know, look, I love the Beatles. I love marijuana. I love the Grateful Dead. I had no idea uh, that got to get you into my life was a uh, uh, was an ode to marijuana. Uh, I saw Chicago cover it as their encore when I first saw my first rock concert in 74 or 75 with good buddy Mark and his sister and her boyfriend, you know, I, I knew some of the Chicago tunes, but at the end they played this. And even though, uh, you know, I was probably only uh, 12 or 13 at the time, uh, we all knew the Beatles and we all knew that song. Um, and for all, forever, we've always thought that it's just a, uh, a love story. But nope, according to Sir Paul, well, it is a love story, but it's a love story to pot. 
and God bless him. And you can learn new things about the Beatles every day. Uh, so thank you to Dan uh, for all of that. Now, this is uh, the big news story of the day. I, I, I got telephone calls about this uh, last week, right after I had finished taping last week's show. So unfortunately, uh, the discussion had to wait a week. And we're going to be talking more about this as we go forward. But a couple of studies uh, were recently released uh, that suggest a connection between smoking marijuana and heart disease. And actually, it wasn't even smoking marijuana. They talked about use of marijuana, although they never really said that THC was the problem. I, I sense that the problem for them is smoking and bringing tar and other things into your lungs and the damage that could have on your heart. But uh, marijuana use can raise odds for heart attack, heart failure. That's the headline. Now, I'm going to be very clear about this as I, as I dive into this. My objection is not to the fact that someday people might discover something with marijuana that suggests that it, it, it endangers human health in a way that previously had not been known. I'm open to information and change, and I would think that a lot of people are open to information or change. If statistics came out and said, hey, if you're over 60 and you're smoking marijuana, you know, you've got a 95% chance of, you know, increased heart or not even 95, whatever it might be, you know, like anything else in life, we all have to sit down at that point and, and think about it and evaluate the risks and the challenges. But when we do that, we want to make sure that we really understand the facts and the evidence and, and what people are talking about when they say this, because this is a stone cold killer drop dead headline, right? That marijuana use could raise the odds for heart attack or heart failure. My wife didn't like reading that. And even friends of mine who smoke marijuana were, you know, concerned about that enough to pick up the phone and call me. What do I know about this? What have I heard? Am I scared? Am I going to stop smoking? And, and my immediate response, like it always is, is, well, let's take a look. Because the one thing we've learned about mainstream studies that come out on marijuana health is there's often a lot of things that get lost in the weeds, if you will, or, you know, the fine print or the footnotes or whatever you want to call it, and that the headlines are made with a conclusion uh, that although a uh, mathematical possibility uh, certainly might get undercut by other stuff, the most famous being recently when studies came out that suggested that there was a connection between smoking marijuana and lung cancer until uh, somebody did a little more reading and realized that every person in the group they tested was also a cigarette smoker. And of course, that's a very important factor when you're making that type of a claim and somehow that little uh, disclaimer failed to get itself into the headlines. And so, of course, again, people were uh, very panicked and certainly with good reason, you know, as we all grow older uh, and hit our uh, 60s, well, at least me and a lot of my friends, you know, and 70 all of a sudden is not such a far-flung number. Uh, we all have health issues that we have to start thinking about or uh, changes in our overall conditions that don't allow us to do all the same things we used to be able to do, which is why Michael Jordan is still not leading the NBA in scoring every year. Um, right. So news like this is important and I welcome news like this. And I want the conversation about marijuana to include all points of view. But what my only objection is when you bring a point of view to the table, it has to be based on fact. It has to be grounded in reality and everything about it has to be disclosed so that people who are reading it can make an intelligent determination as to whether or not the information that's coming out is a potential red flag, a real red flag, a if you don't stop right now, you're going to drop dead type of flag because we're all influenced by what we read. And certainly today with the internet and, and the World Wide Web, stories about everything come from everywhere. And, uh, you know, due to the 
upswing in the interest of marijuana over the last 10 or 15 years. And of course, the legalization process that it's been going through from state to state. There's a lot more incentive now for people to be doing medical studies. Now, the first thing about this study, uh, these studies that really slap me in the face is every other study we've read about, every other study we've talked about on this show uh, that I've seen that addresses uh, the issues of marijuana and health have always painted at worst a neutral picture and at best a very positive fi- picture. We've seen the studies that say that in communities with legal marijuana, uh, overall health insurance premiums go down because overall health claims go down. Uh, we see the uh, uh, health benefits of uh, treating pain with cannabis as, a, as opposed to opioid drugs or psychotropic drugs for people uh, with with certain uh, uh, mental conditions or uh, uh, issues like that that they want to have addressed. Um, it talks about older people and how they find that when they start using certain levels of THC, it improves the quality of their life. It makes them feel better. It gives them an appetite. Uh, the list just goes on and on and on of studies that have been done on marijuana uh, that raise positive reports from it. We, we talked about uh, the people who smoke marijuana and contacted COVID had much less severe cases of COVID. Uh, in some instances, there were even studies that suggested that smoking certain types of sativa strains would help the body reject the uh, uh COVID virus because it would inhibit the ACE2 pathway, which is the way the virus enters the body. So to all of a sudden have an article that doesn't, that comes out that doesn't even just raise a potential negative for marijuana, but I mean, let's not kid ourselves. Taking that headline at face value, this is a total game changer for marijuana use for some people, especially people, uh, you know, who might already have some sort of a cardiac condition, regardless of what it is, or people who are just at an age where it's time to start looking out for your heart a little more carefully than you did when you were in your 20s and 30s. And we all be a little more careful about what we eat and what we do and how much sleep we get and and all of this kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, you just have to be careful. So, I'm not getting into the studies today because, A, I'm not, I mean, excuse me, I am going to get into the studies, but from the other side, I, I'm not going to comment on the studies themselves in terms of uh, trying to explain or promote all of them because, quite frankly, I'm not a cardiologist. I don't really understand all of the medicine that's involved with it. And from my perspective, um, I'm, I'm looking for these other types of uh, objective points that I can find and latch onto as a way to explore this and really question, at least from an initial look, uh, what my thoughts are on it. At the same time, I will say right now that I will defer to any cardiologist uh, who comes in and is willing to give it a fair reading, meaning I don't want somebody who's anti-marijuana to come in and say, yep, this proves that we're all going to die if we smoke it. But, you know, somebody, a, a cardiologist who will come in, uh, you know, with an open mind to all of it. And look, if, if there's if there's cardiologists out there who I, I know, I like, I respect, and I would certainly, uh, you know, be interested in in their reports on this. Um, but let's go ahead and, and let's take a look at these articles um, and, and, and see exactly what we've got. In the, in the first study, it was a team that looked at nearly 29,000 marijuana users over 65 years of age who were part of a nationwide database of inpatient hospital stays. None smoke traditional tobacco cigarettes. So we've got the tobacco cigarettes out of the, rate, out of the way already, um, but these are people uh, you know, who are already inpatient hospital. Now, presumably we're going to find out that the marijuana put a certain number of them there. Uh, but let's, let's, let's find out. Um, of that population, 14% uh, suffered a heart attack or stroke 
But that does not say uh, that marijuana was the cause of the heart attack or stroke. In my mind, the bigger question is what would be the normal percent for suffering a heart attack or stroke in a group of 29,000 random people with all the other qualifiers that they put in? You know, I don't know. Is this is this a number that's drastically higher than would have otherwise normally occurred without uh, marijuana use? It doesn't tell us. So that already begins to raise a question in my mind. Now, maybe again, maybe I'm reading this wrong. Maybe that's maybe that's not a legitimate question. But for me, as a marijuana user and somebody who looks into this, I think it's a very legitimate question. And I would like to really understand that better. Uh, who are we starting with? If, if you're starting with inpatient hospital stays already, you know, you're finding people who have had heart attacks. You know, you're not looking, it doesn't seem to me, as the population as a, as a whole, Right. A million people, what percentage are you saying that uh, that 14% of those people, and, and I'm also not a statistics expert, so, uh, you know, you have to bear with me on this one. But I think these are that's a simple question that I would like to get an answer to. Number two, it says, uh, in, in addressing this issue, it says those with cannabis use disorder who suffered a heart attack or a stroke were more likely to be black patients with AIDS alcohol or drug abuse, depression, or high blood pressure, the study found. Okay, now hold on a second. This is a very, very, very significant fact that was not made apparent at all in the initial report and certainly not in the headline. First of all, we're talking about those with cannabis use disorder. I, I beg anyone to come in here and sit down and give me a medically acceptable definition for cannabis use disorder. It's a very, very vague term, and it's far more subjective than objective. People go into a hospital uh, emergency room because they ate too much, uh, too many uh, edibles. They can get diagnosed with cannabis use disorder, even if it's only the first time they ever tried it. So until we have a full medical uh, uh, consensus on what constitutes cannabis use disorder, uh, I don't even like that term. But here they're saying <laughs> it doesn't apply to everyone who smokes marijuana. If you're a casual smoker, somebody, it, this study is for people who have cannabis use disorders, right? Which either means you're smoking way too much as far as they're concerned, or you've smoked it a couple of times and you've had bad experiences, which would beg the question of why you would even be smoking it again, but we'll play along and say that you do. Okay. But listen to this next line. The group that they found that was most likely to be included in this statistic are patients who are black, okay? Let's think about that for a minute. The black population in this country is still a minority. I don't know off the top of my head what percentage of the population is black, but I'm you know, com comfortable in saying it's under 50% and probably under 40%. So black, but not just black patients, black patients with a additional factor with AIDS, alcohol or drug abuse, depression or high blood pressure. So I would read this to mean that if you are a black person without cannabis use disorder, without AIDS, you don't drink alcohol or, or abuse it, you don't abuse other drugs, you're not depressed, you don't have high blood pressure, then maybe you don't even have to be concerned about this study. There's so many qualifiers, there's so many little factors that came in to this report that as a white male who doesn't have AIDS, who doesn't have alcohol or drug abuse, who's not depressed and who doesn't have high blood pressure, when I learn these factors, it says to me, maybe there's not a whole lot of reason for me to be paying attention to this story. And that's wrong. 
There should be a reason because if it affects anybody anywhere, we need to know. But there's a better way to present this type of study that calls all of this out and says, notwithstanding these factors, the, the idea that it could impact any group of people is significant and something that should get out there. Because of course, if I was a black person and either I had a family history of, of, of some of these conditions or myself, I had had, I had a, I have AIDS or I have high blood pressure. I would want to know this. This is important information for me, but it has to be presented in a way that's acceptable to people, right? In other words, who aren't just going to reject it out of hand. It's a government study or it's a, it's a medical group study, or they, they came into it with a predetermined bias, or they're saying it only applies to certain people. It's too important for that. And that's what I'm really upset about here. This is important enough that when you give us a big uh, stop the presses headline, and then we find out that really what we're looking at, something that was not even made significant in the apparent initial report, um, I, I, I think it really uh, not just depresses the impact of the story, but it affects the credibility of people in the marijuana world, people who smoke marijuana or otherwise use marijuana, to be able to have an open mind when articles like this come out. You know, we don't want you to hide your stories. We, we're open to this news like anything else in the world. Now, of course, like anything else in the world, you can probably prove that anything causes cancer. And for those of you not familiar with California Prop 65, don't waste your time, but that's what it says. Pretty much everything in the world causes cancer today. So, you know, um, this study does not prove that marijuana causes heart attacks or stroke, only that there appears to be some causal connection when other certain factors are added in. This original story strongly suggested a, uh, a causal effect, but this is a much, much softer conclusion when you really read everything uh, and, and understand. And, and the author of the study suspects that smoking marijuana may have the same effects as cigarette smoking, including an increased risk of a major heart event, maybe. But all the studies to date that we have seen have not recognized that marijuana has the same effect as cigarette smoke. And in fact, they've gone in the opposite direction and said that the instances of marijuana causing lung cancer uh, are, are so few and far between that there's hardly any reported cases on the subject. Again, it doesn't mean it doesn't happen, right? Somebody, somebody got lung cancer, they didn't report it, or they said they only smoked cigarettes. We never know for sure, but we can only go with what we do know. And uh, I, I, I think that the, the science behind this, not the science, but the study methodology behind this is seriously lacking. And the press is so much looking for, and the prohibitionists are so much looking for anything that they can use to push back on marijuana legalization, that they jump on this story, you know, like a dog, you know, on a red meat. This is for them, baby. This is this gets them moving. And it's really, really important uh, to understand what's going on here. Now, the second uh, study that was trying to show the link was con conducted by Dr. Yukuba Bene Alhassan from MedStar Health in Baltimore. And from data on 157,000 marijuana users, his team found that over four years of follow-up, nearly 2% developed heart failure. People who had used cannabis daily had a 34% increased risk compared with those who never used it. Now, first of all, this is almost 20 percentage points higher than the previous study of 14 to 34%. So are they saying that the marijuana use itself leads to that rate? 
The risk was the same regardless of age, sex, or smoking history. But when coronary artery disease was taken into account, the risk of heart failure dropped from 34 to 27%, suggesting that coronary artery disease may be the pathway for marijuana use to heart failure. I agree that someone with coronary artery disease should not be smoking marijuana on a regular basis. I would probably be saying that even without knowing this. That just seems to make common sense up to a certain point uh, when you get certain illnesses and conditions and, uh, you know, something like your heart that your body depends upon. That's not the time necessarily. Uh, I would defer again to doctors who know better than I, but, you know, to be experimenting um, with things like marijuana. And it could be easily understood why pulling hot smoke into your lungs when you have uh, coronary artery disease um, isn't good. And I would agree that anyone with coronary artery disease should not be smoking on a regular basis or certainly should not be doing so uh, without extensive counseling uh, with their doctor and, if necessary, with doctors who specialize in the area um, of medical cannabis and it, the way it can be used um, in, in, in that regard. But finally, and you know, those of you who listen to this show on a regular basis may know exactly where I'm going now. Whether marijuana actually causes cardiovascular problems is still up in the air, according to Paul Armentano. Uh, Paul is uh, a deputy director of Normal, and you've heard me talk about Paul. We've had his uh, part in Mason Tavert on the show before, and when they were on the show, uh, when he was on the show, and, and I've often quoted their book, um, if can if Cannabis is safer than alcohol. Why are we driving everyone to drink? Where they go through and they 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 dispel all of these crazy notions. This were long before these studies that I've been reading to you came out. They were the ones in their book who had already done the research and pointed out the traffic deaths went down, the teenage smoking went down, that violent crime, domestic abuse all went down uh, when people smoked marijuana. That uh, it, it provided health benefits and it didn't cause public health uh, uh, problems or issues. And so when I see a study like this, the very first thing I do is Google the name of the story and then what does Paul Armentano or Mason DeVert have to say about it? So again, Paul starts off by saying that whether marijuana actually causes cardiovascular problems is still up into the air. Uh, and he is recognized as one of the leading experts on the true effects of marijuana. Uh, and I will trust no study on marijuana done by anyone until I hear what Paul uh, or Mason have to say. Armentano noted that a study published in the October issue of the journal Circulation found no increased risk of heart issues among marijuana users. Other studies have also failed to show an association between the drug and cardiovascular events, he said. In other words, at this point, the new study results appear to be the outliers. Uh, th th this is not the first time somebody has looked at this issue. Um, so then we have to say, if they're outliers, why? Well, because they were looking at black males, because... Um, they were looking at people who already had coronary artery disease, right? These are the types of factors uh, when, you, when you come up with something that's an outlier like that, that makes you want to go and look at it a little more closely. Paul went on to say, my presumption is that it's the association with other unhealthy behaviors rather than cannabis use per se that is driving the association highlighted in these latest papers, he explained. And it's more often the, uh, not it's more often than not the case that studies inflate the impact of marijuana, but fail to consider or disclose the other significant factors. And we talked about that uh, the one on lung cancer failed to mention right away uh, that they were all cigarette smokers until that data was pulled out. In here, we're talking about black patients. We're talking about patients who already have existing 
coronary artery disease. And again, not just black patients, but black patients with any one, also coupled with any one of a number of other chronic illnesses or conditions. Um, and so, uh, you know, when I, when I see this and, and I read these types of results, then it, it, it's great to see uh, what, what, what Paul says. He went on to say, it is well known that inhaling cannabis by vaporizer significantly mitigates exposure to combustion and the use of herbal cannabis vaporizers has been determined to be safe and effective. Armentano said, of course, legal cannabis markets also now offer a variety of non-inhalable formulations of cannabis-infused products as well, he added. We know that, but why is that important? Because when the headline says marijuana use, it doesn't say smoking marijuana. It says marijuana use, which again lays the suggestion that it's the THC itself that any use of marijuana does. And in fact, no, we're talking about smoking marijuana. And as Paul points out, of course, that's what it is because we, we know that something like, uh, when I say smoking, I mean combusting with, a, with an open flame, um, right? Because we know that, that uh, vaporizers have been determined to be safe and effective. Uh, and, and of course, uh, um, uh, edibles aren't going to cause the same problems uh, that smoking is causing. So uh, even still, the, the, the report, I, I feel was somewhat misleading in initially failing to make a, a very major distinction uh, with regard to the method that you ingest or take into your body, the marijuana. And of course, that's, that's just so important too. Now, my position on all of this is I'm not a doctor. I'm in no position to question the legitimacy, accuracy, uh, or the conclusions of the reports. But the link they are trying to establish seems very weak to me. This is a study I would be more concerned about where a black man with one of those other factors or someone with coronary artery disease. It's still an important result as the world finally is beginning to learn the medical truth about cannabis, both in terms of how it can help or conversely, how it can hurt. One thing to keep an eye on is whether health insurance premiums now rise for marijuana users. Currently, most health and life insurance policies do not require a test for marijuana use. Why? Because they would never be able to sell insurance policies. There is no group in the world more conservative than insurance risk underwriters. If they don't react, then I would also say that this is overblown. If all of a sudden they start testing for it and raise their premiums for marijuana users like they do for cigarette or tobacco users, then I would be more inclined to take a closer look at this to see whether there really is an associated risk or whether the insurance industry is just looking for a way uh, to jack up premiums, which unfortunately uh, is a reality too. I get very frustrated every time a story comes out alleging it has discovered some new bad side effect from marijuana marijuana use, but don't tell you the whole story and all of the relevant factors up front. It's just more clickbait to uh, bring in readers, raise ad revenues. It's very disturbing for an industry that is still fighting for social recognition and normalization. And regardless of the ultimate veracity of these new studies, marijuana kills far less people every year than tobacco, alcohol, pain meds like narcotics and everything else. So uh, I, that's where I come out on this issue. It's an important issue. And I'm gonna hope that we can get uh, some medical experts in at one point uh, who are going to be able to really help us with this and uh, get a better understanding of exactly what we're dealing with so that uh, everybody can get a, 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 uh, a more educated approach. In the meantime, back to Jerry Garcia 
from November 15th, 1991. And for me, that just kind of resonates that year because my son Matthew was born in July of 1991. And as I indicated last week, he's now a father uh, down in Atlanta. So, you know, that's a long time. It's not a long time. I guess it just depends on how you look at it. Um, But then this next song we're going to listen to uh, takes me even farther back. Down Sally, a song written and performed by Eric Clapton. Actually, Clapton wrote it with Marcy Levy and George Terry. Uh, it was released uh, on uh, Clapton's album Slow Hand, which came out in November 1977 and reached number three on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. It was released as a single with cocaine on the B side, so quite the heavy hitting release. Um, back in the day. And I think I may have even had that 45. I certainly have the album Slowhand. It was the song of the summer of 1978 and always one of Slowhand's favorite songs. Uh, my buddy Mikey and I just always like to refer to Eric Clapton as Slowhand because uh, when you see him up there playing away, baby, his hand looks like it's moving slow, but he's getting a lot done. Uh, Lay Down Sally is a country blues song performed in the style of J.J. Kale, which is no surprise since J.J. Kale wrote Cocaine. Uh, Clapton explained, it's as close as I can get being English, but the band being a Tulsa band, they play like that naturally. You couldn't get them to do an English rock sound, no way. The idea of a driving beat isn't being loud or anything. It's subtle. Billboard magazine described Clapton's vocals as low-key but earthy and also praised Marcy Levy's backing vocals. Cashbox praised Clapton's guitar finesse, but, you know, that's like saying that, uh, you know, Walter Payton was a good running back, right? I mean, uh, we know that Clapton is one of the all-time great guitar players, just uh, an absolutely amazing talent. In fact, you know, may have redefined guitar playing in a way that nobody else did because of that uh, finesse, you know. Uh, Hendrix is an amazing guitar player, but his guitar playing tended to be, you know, kind of loud and and noisy, if you will, amazing and and and, and wonderful. Uh, but whereas Clapton's, you know, was a little more low key and earthy, a little more finesse, but he could jam uh, when he when he needed to. If you ever want, since he's talking about his Tulsa band, um, check out uh, Clapton's version of the song of Tulsa Time, uh, which is just a uh, 
uh, a great show. They just come out rocking on it. And it, it's on one of his live albums from Japan. It, it's the opening tune. And um, when, when Eric wanted to let it go, uh, he let it go. Now, uh, the Jerry Garcia band wound up covering this tune 54 times. Uh, the first was on uh, November 20th, 1990 at the Warfield. And the last was on March 4th, 1995, also at the Warfield. So this one didn't make it all the way up to his last show, but you will note the number of times Warfield pops up. I, was, I think that may have been Jerry's favorite place to play. It was right there at home. He could sleep in his own bed, a beautiful old theater. Still on my list of theaters that I have not been to yet, much to the chagrin of my good buddy Alex Wellens, who will be our uh, guest next week. Uh, we'll talk more about venues and stuff like that with Alex next week. But one of these days, I'll make it to the Warfield, uh, unfortunately, never to see the Jerry Garcia band. The song gets a great crowd reaction, and you can just tell that Jerry loves jamming on Clapton tunes. Again, he really extends this one out really makes a lot of the guitar solos, um, and it's really fun. While looking around on the internet, I found a picture of Garcia and Clapton from way back in the day uh, that we may post here as our some of our show art. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's Jerry without his beard and mustache, so he always looked a little dorky that way. And uh, Eric, at the height of his um, uh, cool... Uh, cool era, right? Wearing one of those funky London style jackets with long hair all over the place. And, but, you know, no doubt two guitar legends hanging out at the same time. Uh, and, and Clapton was actually interviewed uh, about the Grateful Dead in 1968. Uh, and he was asked, have you heard the Grateful Dead record? Meaning they're the, the first album that came out, Grateful Dead. Cla Clapton responds, responds, yeah, it's great. Next question. Peter Townsend said he saw the dead at the Monterey Pop Festival and called them one of the original ropies answer ropey that means a drag i don't think the quality of their music is as high as a lot of other good recording bands people are more concerned with live music maybe than recording i'm not sure of that i'm guessing if the grateful dead are one of the best they're not doing a very good job on record question what do you think of the guitar playing jerry garcia's synthesis of blues jazz and country and western with a little jug band thrown in and then uh, clapton responded it's very good and very tight but it's not really my bag. And uh, there you have it, you know, different tastes for different folks. Um, I was flying out to California once in 1985 to see the uh, uh, 20th anniversary shows at the uh, Greek theater. And it just so happened that on my plane, uh, who I noticed when I was waiting to get on was George Thorogood of George Thorogood and the Delaware Destroyers. And I was a George Thorogood fan and got the nerve to go up and say hello to him and introduce myself to him. And he was very friendly and spoke with me for a few minutes. And uh, we both, you know, going out to the to the Bay Area, and he asked me what I was going out there for, and I said I was going out to see the Grateful Dead play at the Greek Theater, and I asked him if he had ever seen the Grateful Dead, and George said, you know, not really a fan of the Grateful Dead, and okay, that's his opinion. At the time, I remember being a little, how could not somebody not like the Grateful Dead, but I still love George Thorogood. Um, one bourbon, one shot, and one beer is a great tune. Uh, we saw them open for the Rolling Stones in 1981 at JFK Stadium in Philadelphia uh, when the Stones opened their... Uh, the start me up tour. And uh, so, yeah, uh, you know, the Grateful Dead appealed to someone. They didn't appeal to everybody. And those in the music industry, like anywhere else, uh, were often the same. But it's hard to listen to this next tune and tell me that you don't love uh, Jerry Garcia.
Finally, a Garcia tune. Uh, going to see Jerry is great. Uh, you get a lot of great covers, as we've been hearing today. Uh, but we all appreciate when he starts playing his own music. And uh, really, uh, Deal, just one of his best. It's one of the Grateful Dead's live staples. Um, one of many gambling songs uh, from the uh, Hunter Garcia collaboration. It was first performed on February 19th, 1971 uh, by the Grateful Dead. The song was in regular rotation until the end, both for the Dead and the Jerry Garcia band. Deal saw its studio release as the opening track to Garcia's 1972 debut solo album, Garcia, which also contained several other classic Grateful Dead live songs, including Sugaree, Birdsong, Loser, and The Wheel. It's also worth noting that the classic folk song, Don't Let Your Deal Go Down, first recorded in 1925 by, Char by Charlie Poole and the North Carolina Ramblers, contains many similarities to the Grateful Dead song. Hunter was known to pull references from a wide variety of sources in his, in his songwriting, and it's highly likely he was familiar with the tune. Now, the Jerry Garcia band played the song uh, about 290 times in concert. Uh, the first was on March 4th, 1978 at the Keystone in Palo Alto, and the last was, yeah, you guessed it, October 23rd, 1995 at the Warfield. Uh, the Grateful Dead uh, played it 422 times out of 2,300 shows. First on February 1971 at the Cap Theater, we said, in Port Chester, New York. And then the last time was on June 18th, 1995 at Giant Stadium in East Rutherford, New Jersey. This song was played so frequently by the Grateful Dead that the longest absence from the rotation over the entire course of the Grateful Dead's history, uh, well, I guess that's not fair to say from when the song came out, was 29 shows. It was played on October 2nd, 1988 at Shoreline in Mountain View, California, and was not played again until April 11th, 1989 at the Rosemont Horizon in Rosemont, Illinois, a show that I was at. Um, but that's it. 29 shows is the longest time they ever went uh, from the time that it was written without playing it. Clearly, clearly a, uh, a, a, a Garcia and a dead favorite. You had to be trying really hard or just be really unlucky to never catch this tune during those days. I still say it's the best Gar Garcia tune out there when you take the music, the tempo. Jerry just loves to jam and his voice. It's, it's always, almost always a first set closer, whether played by the dead or played by the Jerry Garcia band, but it's, it's such a wonderful rocking tune. Uh, it's a great story. He puts so much into it. And when he just takes off on those jams, uh, there's really nothing like it. And, and again, you know, you got to go back and listen to it to really uh, be able to appreciate everything that it has. Um, I want to run through just a couple of other marijuana stories here today that quite frankly, I feel are, uh, you know, at least worth mentioning for today. And we don't have a lot of time left, but we'll just kind of touch on them because they're all going to lead us to other places, um, with, with, with more stories. Um, but, but these are important. So first of all, thanks to our friends at marijuana moment, a former FDA official says he'd be shocked if the DEA doesn't reschedule marijuana by the 2024 election. This is from Howard Sklampberg, the former FDA Deputy Commissioner for Global Regulatory Operations and Compliance. So what he's saying is he expects uh, that the DEA will ultimately accept the FDA's recommendation to put cannabis in Schedule 3, now currently in Schedule 1, of the Controlled Substances Act instead of reaching a contradictory scheduling decision. He says, I'd personally be surprised if DEA did not agree ultimately with the FDA and the Department of Health and Human Services decision, says Clamberg, who served as the chair for FDA's marijuana working group from 14, 2014 to 2017. It certainly would be strange in an issue that is such an important priority for the administration for one part of the administration to reverse what another one has said. 
Um, and they go on to note uh, that the rescheduling administration hearing was decidedly upbeat. I'm really forward, looking forward to this conversation and getting people to a place where they understand uh, this is a really good thing. They call it a giant step in the right direction and one that probably, you know, four years ago would not have been foreseen. And of course, what they immediately point to is something we all know, that it comes off of the 280E concerns, which only apply to Schedule 1 and Schedule 2. They don't apply to anything lower than that. So all of a sudden, your applicable tax rate drops from like 80% down to 25% or maybe 30%. I'm no tax expert. If you're a, uh, a cannabis dispensary owner, that's a good thing. Nobody argues that. You can also get banking services because now it's no longer Schedule 1 or Schedule 2. That's also a very good thing. And then they say, oh, some people have worried it could threaten state legal marijuana systems, uh, but he's confident that that won't happen. Uh, I would say people who have a fear of the unknown ahead uh, would be in Schedule 3 is that companies will break Schedule 3 law just like they do Schedule 1. So, okay, this is where this all gets just stupid, right? They're missing the point. Every drug that's listed on Schedule 3, 4, or 5 in this country is sold exclusively by licensed pharmacists. That's it. So while they say we're going to put it on Schedule 3 and look at the good job we're doing, we're getting rid of 280E and we're, we're giving you banking services, we don't know how this is going to play out yet. They can say whatever they want. Are the pharmacists going to come in and say, you can only let us sell this or are there going to be other drugs on Schedules 3, 4, and 5 that all of a sudden they let non-pharmacists start selling? Are they going to be able to do that and, you know, and, and not be contradicting themselves? This is a major, major issue. So if, if I'm a, a mom and pop pharmacist or a multi-state operator, it doesn't really matter. If this goes down to Schedule 3 and all of a sudden they say, can only be a pharmacist. So what are they saying here? Oh, that's okay. State operators are going are gonna to break the law on Schedule 3 just like they're breaking the law on Schedule 1 right now. That's stupid. Stupid, stupid, stupid on any level. The only reason people are breaking the law on Schedule 1 is because it shouldn't be on Schedule 1. It shouldn't be on any schedule whatsoever. Schedule 3 admits, they're admitting you're still breaking the law. You still have to break the law just to a lesser degree. You get 280E off your back. You get banking services. Yeah, you say, we don't want to break the law. If you're telling us we're going to be breaking the law, just keep it on Schedule 1 and we'll keep dealing with it like we're dealing with it. But putting it on Schedule 3 is not doing anyone a favor. It creates these other problems that they have not addressed. Now, if they're going to come out and say that it will be on Schedule 3, but we are going to establish as a matter of federal law that private operators, dispensary owners, non-pharmacists, non-licensed pharmacists can sell it. And I don't even know if that's a decision for the, uh, for the feds to make or if that's a state-by-state -state decision made by each state's medical or pharmacological board. So there's so much that we don't know, but they're so excited that they're doing the cannabis industry a favor. Just take it off the damn schedules. It doesn't belong. It shouldn't be illegal. Alcohol's not illegal. Tobacco's not illegal. Caffeine's not illegal. Substances that cause far more problems for people than does THC. Why does this have to be illegal on any level? Why do you have to make people feel like they're breaking the law, breaking federal law for that matter? So that reduces investors in the industry who say, well, I don't want to get in trouble here if I invest all this money. And then they come back and say that only a licensed pharmacist can distribute it. And don't you think that whatever union or trade group is out there representing the licensed pharmacists in this country is going to make a big deal out of this? Because, of course, if you take it away from them, this drug away from them, 
What else can you take away from them? And if without that monopoly, they're going to say, why we can't compete with uh, prices at Walmart or Target or anywhere else. People can just start uh, going and buying drugs without having to buy them from a pharmacist. Um, so, uh, you know, this is such a red herring. Everybody trying to pat themselves on the back so hard. Oh, look at Biden. He hated marijuana. Now he's going to allow this to happen. Who would have imagined? Well, if he really loved marijuana, he would push and, the, and uh, all of these groups would be pushing to de-schedule marijuana, not reschedule it, de-schedule it. Don't let them fool you. Yes, there are some benefits to this. And certainly if you own a dispensary right now and you don't have to comply with 280E anymore, that will be beneficial. But it won't mean anything if they come six months later and say, you're not a licensed pharmacist. You either have to sell to a licensed pharmacist or you have to hire a licensed pharmacist. And what do you think licensed pharmacists are going to start charging to come in and be that guy in medical or adult use dispensaries? So sorry, I, I, I'm, uh, you know, I, I'm happy we're moving in that direction, but that's just not the right direction to be moving in. One last little fun statistic we're going to throw out here today. And this is very important because not only is this a positive health issue as it relates to the use of marijuana. But keep in mind what that other study with heart attacks was saying about cannabis use disorder. Thanks again to Marijuana Moment. States that legalize marijuana see significantly lower rates of cannabis use disorder cases at emergency rooms compared to non-legal states. The study finds, hello, hello, Legalization, again, having an effect that's the complete opposite of what most people would logically assume to be the case, right? If, if there's a more marijuana around in these states and it's sold and it's a higher THC and this and that, that's where we would expect this to be happening. But guess what? That's not what they found. The odds that a patient visiting the emergency department is diagnosed with cannabis use disorder is nearly 50% lower in states that have legalized marijuana compared to non-legal states, according to a new study. And researchers say the counterintuitive finding could be related to the to the destigmatization, thank you, of cannabis use within the medical community as prohibition ends, right? So Long story short, what they're really saying here is in states that have legalized marijuana, the medical community has become more adept and more used uh, to seeing uh, cases where people come in because uh, they've they've eaten too many um, uh, they've eaten too many edibles, they've done too many uh, dabs on their rig, they've smoked too much marijuana, whatever it might be, and what they're saying that those doctors who see these types of things on a regular basis are not as quick to diagnose the people with cannabis use disorder. And this is a big point from the other study where they talk about people with cannabis use disorder as one of the factors that makes you more likely to be in the, the, the category of people who could suffer a heart attack or heart disease if you smoke marijuana. And basically what they're saying here is that, as I was saying before, the cannabis use disorder is completely subjective. If you're a doctor in a state that has legal marijuana, you've seen it. You understand what you're seeing when somebody comes in the door. You know what? You had too much marijuana. Go home, have a cup of warm milk or whatever calms you down. Get in bed, you know, watch some easy TV, read a book, talk to your friends, do whatever you have to do and allow the moment to pass. It will pass. You're not going to die. If this makes you not want to use marijuana in the future, 
fine. Uh, if it makes you say, maybe I just didn't do it right, that's for you to decide. But how important is this? That where we are seeing is, we're not saying as a result of this, that marijuana is safer in those states. We're saying that in the states where marijuana is legalized, the medical community is better equipped to understand what they're dealing with and are not nearly as likely to label something cannabis use disorder, which kind of sounds like the guy likes to get high. He's having a freaky event in here. Uh, yeah, he, he's got a cannabis use disorder, clearly. Well, you have to stop saying that and you have to stop using that. It's not a boogeyman that you can use anymore. And it's not a factor that can be appropriately used as a basis to support a scientific study, a health study. So broad as the one that merely comes out to say that uh, studies show that marijuana use increases the risk of heart disease or a heart attack. So, you know, let's all get on the same page with this, folks, because this is just bad and, and it's scary and it's really not the right way it should go. I'm going to swing back to the music. I got two more tunes. We're going to zip, zip through them really fast because I love these tunes and uh, I just want to get them out there for you. So give us the next tune from uh, Madison Square Garden 32 years and two days ago, please. I just Bread in the Bread Box, written by Philip Jackson, uh, best known as Norton Buffalo. Uh, it was an American singer-songwriter, country and blues harmonica player, record producer, band leader, and recording artist who was a versatile proponent of the harmonica. Uh, in early 1976, Buffalo joined the farewell European tour of Commander Cody and his Lost Planet Airmen, was recorded on the band's final live album. We've got a live one here, which included Buffalo's song 18 Wheels. After the tour, Buffalo returned to California briefly with a number of local bands, and later in 1976, he joined the Steve Miller Band's Fly Like an Eagle tour. He also played harmonica on the band's hit follow-up album, Book of Dreams, released in May 1977. Buffalo appeared on the tracks Wintertime and The Stake. By the late 1970s, Buffalo had formed his own band, The Stampede, and recorded two Capitol Records albums, Lovin' in the Valley of the Moon and Desert Horizon. In 1977, his harmonica work appeared on Bonnie Raitt's Sweet Forgiveness and the Doobie Brothers, excuse me, Living on the Fault Line albums. 
He was a member of the Mickey Hart Band, High Noon, in the late 70s and early 80s with Merle Saunders, Mike Hinton, Jim McPherson, Vicky Randall, and Bobby Vega. He also played with Saunders on uh, the Rainforest Band album, It's in the Air, uh, released in 1993. Ain't No Bread in the Bread Box was performed 65 times by the Jerry Garcia Band, first on November 6, 1991, at the Cap Center in Landover, Maryland, um, just nine days earlier, uh, but this was the band's seventh performance of the tune at the time, and then it was played uh, up until, um, oh, excuse me, uh, till, uh, oh, well, I'm missing the date on that one, but it got played into the early 1995 as well, so sorry about that. Uh, the song was also played by Phil Lesh with Norton Buffalo, Boz Skaggs, and others in 2004, and Billy and the Kids have covered it from time to time. So another great song, more great Garcia stuff. Uh, you can see why we love Jerry Garcia concerts, because he just goes and pulls out tremendous tunes uh, that are not only fun to listen to, rarities, uh, deep track songs, but then it, you know, again, it, it, it results in all of us going in and diving back in hard. Now, I'm going to admit, I'm going to go back to Bonnie Raitt, the Doobie Brothers, and even Fly Like an Eagle uh, and listen to a little bit of Norton Buffalo's harmonica playing now and uh, give it the credit that it's due. Um, but that's just really good stuff. Now, since uh, I know that uh, uh, Dan has lots of things to be doing today and we've pushed the envelope about as far as we can with this one, um, we're going to we're gonna take leave and, and call it a day. Um, we will see you next week. We're going to have, as I said, my good buddy Alex Wellens on the show. Alex Wellens on the show, uh, who's going to come in and talk with us about uh, all sorts of new musical forums, uh, musical venues, including The Sphere in Las Vegas. Uh, he's going to update us on some of the great music that he's heard lately. You will hear on the show that uh, we call Alex the guy uh, we know who has the best musical karma of anybody out there. If there's a great show, not only does he know about it, but he's typically at it. Uh, saw, you know, well into the high 200 uh, number of Grateful Dead shows, maybe even broken the 300 show barrier, uh, but but quite the uh, authority on a lot of these things. Um, and uh, the go-to guy whenever we have questions about music, songs, anything like that. So I hope you'll tune in next week and listen to that. Uh, we've got a lot of other good stuff going on. I'm going to leave you today with an absolutely beautiful cover tune uh, from this show in Madison Square Garden. What a Wonderful World is a song written by Bob uh, Teal, uh, under the name George Douglas and George David Weiss. It was first recorded by Louis Armstrong and released in 1967 as a single. In April 1968, it topped the pop chart in the United Kingdom, but performed poorly in the United States because a music producer disliked the song because it was the wrong tempo and they locked him out of the recording studio, uh, Larry Newton, so he refused to promote it. After it was heard in the film Good Morning Vietnam, it was reissued as a single in 1988 and rose to number 32 on the Billboard Hot 100. Uh, Armstrong's recording was uh, inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 1999. In Graham Nash's book, Off the Record, Songwriters on Songwriting, George Weiss says he wrote the song specifically for Louis Armstrong as he was inspired by Armstrong's ability to bring together people of different races. The Jerry Garcia Band played the song 12 times in concert, so this one, not so often. Uh, it was first played on November 6, 1991 at the Cap Center in Maryland, again, just nine days before this show, and this was only the band's fourth performance of the tune. And then it was last played on October 31, 1992 uh, at Oklahoma County Coliseum, uh, so it was really just in the rotation for one year. But who can't love Jerry channeling his inner Louis Armstrong and harmonizing uh, with Jackie and Gloria 
uh, and just absolutely beautiful. A great way to end a show, uh, send every home with a smile and a warm, fuzzy feeling, a perfect night with Jerry. Uh, so that's where we're going to say goodbye. Have a great week. Those of you at MJ BizCon, have a fun time. Sorry, I won't be there this year, uh, but we will try to make an appearance again next year. Uh, be safe, and as always, enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thank you, everyone. So also on the faces of people passing listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Joyce Gerber, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast, The Canna Mom Show. And we are on a mission to enhance the impact women have on this industry as business professionals, healthcare providers, policy advocates, caregivers, moms, by sharing and preserving their stories of love and kindness, wisdom, and hope. I am so grateful to have found my tribe of Canada podcasters right here on PodConX and look forward to our work of crushing the stigma around cannabis and caregivers and building this new industry together.